Let's go ahead and get started because I feel like we're going to run out of time anyway with what we're going to cover today. It's good to see all of you. Happy Saturday. Saturday. Hope you're having a good time thus far in the conference. My name is Justin, and we're going to talk about Billy Graham's revivals. I teach 18 to 22-year-olds, and this week I talked with six of them and said, do you know who Billy Graham is? Four out of the six had never heard of Billy Graham. Now, that's not a scientific study. Um, I, did, I, I might need more people to get a more accurate number of what 18 to, 20, 18 to 22 year olds think, but at least four out of those six had never heard of him before. And that's astonishing uh, for me, but I'm much older than 18 to 22 years old. And so what I want to do is make sure we're all aware of the man we're talking about. So I gave you a handout or provided you with one. Much more could have been put on there, but at least gives you an idea of the man we're speaking about who about a year ago died, two days ago, a year ago. He died at the age of 99. We will talk about some of the things you will see on the list there. But out of curiosity, is there anyone in the room who was uh, saved under Billy Graham's ministry? One. Wonderful. Anyone in the room besides, obviously, you, who heard Billy Graham preach in person? Okay, even more. Wow, wonderful. The rest of you, did you ever see Billy Graham uh, teach or preach on video? Outstanding. Wonderful. So there is quite a bit of familiarity with him in some way. And I think there's a reason for that. I have four main points today, and maybe I can get to all of them. Number one, as we've already seen by the hands, the one hand over here, God used Billy Graham's ministry to save an untold number of men and women, boys and girls, all around the world. One report says it, and I'll quote, Graham has preached the gospel to more people in live audiences than anyone else in history. 215 million people in more than 185 countries and territories. For this, we must be grateful. Number two, shaped by much of the inherited tradition from the Second Great Awakening, mainly through the ministry of Finney, Charles Finney, Uh, Graham sought to maximize strategically, technologically, different methods to get people to respond to the gospel. We'll talk about that in a moment. Number three, Billy Graham's evangelistic preaching shifted in tone throughout his career. His call upon his hearers to believe the gospel remained the same. You read early sermons of his, you read late sermons of his, the call for people to believe the gospel is there in both. The tone of his message changes. And the way in which he tells people their need for Christ changes. As we'll see in a moment, in the early days, it is very much loosely fire and brimstone. And in the end of his days, or near the end of his ministry, it's very much the love of God. You be saved, experience the love of God. Both, by the way, 
are true. <laughs> uh, both ends of the spectrum are true. It's just you see, you sense rather a tone shift as he ages and as his ministry expands. Lastly, another point we would make, and this is just my amateurish way of, of looking into Billy Graham's ministry. I believe the 1957 New York City Revival, which on your sheet you will see that I gave you, first page, about third of the way down, more than a third, he led a New York City crusade in Madison Square Garden for 16 weeks. 16 weeks. As you'll see in a moment, there was two years of preparation into that. I believe this shifted everything he did. I think, I think what we see him do later, namely through establishing the magazine of Christianity Today, or what we see him doing during the 50s and 57 and beyond, Christianity Today, his relationships with various people, really um, put, if you will, the breadth to his ministry from what he did there. Um, there's a lot to talk about with that. Okay, I want to read to you a lengthy quote from a book published about those 1957 revivals. So just bear with this. Billy Graham, and I'm quoting, quote, Billy Graham is an interesting combination of a man. Physically, his appearance commands respect. He is six feet two inches tall, straight as a ramrod and hard as nails. He can walk for miles without tiring. When he plays golf, his long strides and fast pace are always a problem to his opponents. One playing partner said, if he can't beat us, he'll walk us to death. His muscles are long and sinewy like those of a professional swimmer. They are not bunched and knotty like those of a weightlifter. His clothes hang neatly on his tall frame with scarcely a wrinkle. He has that indefinable physical quality some people have that makes him appear neat, even in soiled work clothes. His face, without the slightest exaggeration, can be called handsome. He has a profile with classic lines, firm chin, slightly arched nose, full lips, vertical forehead. His blue eyes are, <laughs> his blue eyes are deep set, piercing, but tempered with um, sympathy and understanding. His face, though serious, when relaxed, breaks readily into an unforced smile. When he talks, he is extremely animated and makes with great gestures. In short, physically, he is a man alive, a man who conveys the impression that he is in tune with life and has a wholesome zest for living, end quote. Wow. <laughs> uh, this is the 1950, this is a book published by Zondervan in 1957 by George Burnham and Lee Fisher, entitled Billy Graham and the New York Crusade. That's how they introduced the book. This, if you will, godlike figure who physically is, has a presence that you can't not see. His voice commands respect. His character is one to be emulated, and so on and so forth. It's really hard to critique a man this, in, with this sort of stature. And yet, in some way, because of time and because his ministry is now complete, we can look upon him not only with appreciation, but with a fair critique of how he integrated ministry 
into various settings. Um, to be sure, his influence was not constrained within a small window of American religious or cultural movements. He was routinely referred to as America's pastor or the Protestant Pope. Billy Graham never enjoyed a mere 15 minutes of fame. His was a force that spanned decades, time zones, cultural, religious, political, and racial boundaries. And as I mentioned a few, few days ago, two days ago, mar mar uh, marked one year of his death. His significance can, might, might best be seen through his access to and his influence upon world leaders, particularly here in America. In 2007, Time Magazine veteran reporters Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy co-authored a book entitled The Preacher and the Presidents, Billy Graham in the White House. And in this work, the authors demonstrate the depth of Graham's influence upon American presidents. No civilian has spent the night more in the Lincoln bedroom than Billy Graham. Truman and Bush is an interesting contrast, G George W. Bush. If there was one president who liked, George, uh, who liked Billy Graham the least, it was Harry Truman. And if perhaps there was one president who liked him most, it was George W. Bush. You could go back and read why Truman was a bit mystified by Graham. All happened in 1950. They later reconciled. But to be clear, um, Truman thought that Graham was a self-promoter, a grandstander. And um, many years later, they sort of reconciled. But George W. Bush, a man by his own admission, struggled with alcoholism, says by his own testimony, and I'm quoting him, he recommitted his heart to Jesus through Billy Graham, a conversation with Billy Graham in the 1980s. By the way, that book goes on to show that Billy Graham hosted Barack Obama and his family at his home in North Carolina. They prayed together. They spent 35 minutes together. Donald Trump uh, went to Graham's 95th birthday party in 2013, so he wasn't president at the time. But that's 12 presidents that Graham impacted, plus Trump in some way had a relationship, a significant influence. When President Eisenhower was dying, it was Graham who was at his deathbed, and it was to Graham that Eisenhower asked, how he could be sure that he was about to go to heaven. At the 2007 opening of Billy Graham's library, it wasn't preachers on the stage. It was three presidents. Um, this is significant power and um, influence. He was often called to speak upon uh, to our culture when we were grieving as a nation after the 2001 terrorist attacks. It was Billy Graham who was called upon to lead our nation's memorial. He preached the sermon for the, um, for the survivors and for the, the victims of the terrorist attack. So it's no wonder that he was referred to as America's pastor. However, this is not to suggest that he wasn't without critique. In his life and now in his death, he has been critiqued heavily. Upon his death, many of his critics really came out of the closet and sharpened their swords against him. For example, writing in The Guardian, Matthew Avery Sutton claimed, and I quote, racial tensions are rising, the earth is warming, and evangelicals are doing little to help. That may be Graham's most significant and saddest legacy, end quote. And then he goes on to really stick the knife in 
Quote, When Billy Graham stands before the judgment seat of God, he may finally realize how badly he failed his country, and perhaps his God. On civil rights and the environmental crisis, the most significant issues of our li or his lifetime, he championed the wrong policies. Graham was on the wrong side of history, end quote. That's sort of, if you will, the, the far left sort of criticism of Graham. A lady by the name of Molly Worthen analyzed him as well in 2003, so he's still alive at this time. This is at his 95th birthday party. She says this about Graham, and I quote, If Graham has been the symbol of evangelical unity, he is also part of the reason why today's evangelicalism is more fragmented than ever, end quote. And she goes on to talk about how he was never able to bring about the peace that we're going to see in a moment that he really sought among America's Protestant Christians and even beyond Protestantism. Those on the political left criticized Graham for failing to use his platform and his power to uh, solve the worldwide societal injustices. Those on the religious left, so that's the political left, those on the religious left levied sharp criticism against Graham because, as I've already sort of mentioned, during the early years of his uh, crusades, he was sort of a fire and brimstone kind of preacher. In his New York crusade, the 1957 one, that I think was a huge shift for him, um, the, uh, the Christian century called him a fundamentalist preacher. And if you don't know much about the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the early 20th century, that's a, that's, that being called a fundamentalist was not a compliment. Uh, this has everything to do with um, the fallout at Princeton Theological Seminary, just how, what are the fundamentals of the faith, how modern, how, what does modernism do to the orthodoxy of the Christian faith, and these sorts of things. Where does Billy Graham stand in all of this as well? That was the big contrast. Many people in New York just thought him to be another Billy Sunday. And if the name Billy Sunday doesn't mean anything to you, he was the major league baseball player turned revivalist preacher who set New York on fire, so to speak. <laughs> Not literally, but uh, sort of the precursor to Billy Graham had already gone into that territory. In fact, um, uh, who was it? I think I have it. I'm kind of skipping over a lot. Uh, actually, I'll get to it in a moment. Um, talking about what it was like for Billy Graham to go into uh, New York. Those on the political right, however, were also critical of Billy Graham because they believed he did not do enough to thwart America's increasing moral collapse. With all of that power, why was he so quiet, if you will? Those on the uh, religious right, that's the political right, on the religious right, many criticized him as well for softening the edges of so many doctrinal commitments, reaching, and, reaching across the aisle and holding hands with groups that he otherwise may not should have held hands with. To, to be more clear on that, early days, Billy Graham is very Baptist, if you will, very solidly Protestant. And as his ministry goes on, he's willing to work with almost anyone um, in evangelistic campaigns. He would by the way, buffer that to a degree. He wouldn't work with Mormons, not as far as organize a organizing a campaign or the Jehovah's Witnesses or some other groups. He drew the line. Well, I think best, the best way perhaps to understand a little bit of 
Billy Graham, is to put him in context. We've already heard a number of things so far today and last night that helps sort of situate him in American history. And I've given you a timeline, which maybe gives you an idea. I think the best way to think of Billy Graham is a post-World War II American evangelical, the, the face of even American evangelicalism. And I would even argue that Carl Henry would be the eventual intellectual mind behind it. They'll come together to do Christianity Today and other things later. Oftentimes, and particularly in the academic literature on revivalism, uh, revivalism just refers to a desire for spiritual renewal in the church, and thus a spiritual renewal that would include these three things. So whatever you think about revivalism, at least as we think about it academically, when we look at America's history, we think that revivalism includes these things. A, conversion. B, repentance, and three, a commitment to holiness. Those are the things that you, you usually see, if you will, in the big bucket term of revivalism. I, and I, In fact, I think sometimes when you hear the word revival, it's sort of like a junk drawer kind of term. A lot of things fit in there. And you almost have to know from which part of American history are you thinking of to understand what they mean by that word. Okay? Um, so, and I think, let's just take Billy Graham at his word. So here is a book he wrote, um, A Biblical Standard for Evangelist. And this is a commentary that he wrote on the 15 affirmations made uh, at the International Conference of Itinerant Evangelists in Amsterdam, July 1983. So you can do the math on how old he would be at this time in 1983 when this is done. And again, I just want to read a few things from what he says so you can hear how closely Billy Graham himself sees the relationship of evangelism and revival because they go hand in hand for him. And I'm quoting him now. The greatest need for God's people today is true spiritual revival, a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church a profound repentance and turning from sin, and a deepening commitment to God's will in every area of life. Did you just hear what he just, I just, he just said what I just said a moment ago, or I'm just kind of quoting him <laughs> without quoting him earlier, right? What do, um, what do we think about when we think of revival? Conversion, repentance, holiness. And that's exactly what he's saying is the greatest need. Let me uh, go on to quote him again. Revival and evangelism are not the same. Revival is concerned with the renewal of God's people. Evangelism is concerned with those who have never known Christ. Say it again. Revival and evangelism are not the same. Revival is concerned with the renewal of God's people. Evangelism is concerned with those who have never known Christ. There's a reason why the Billy Graham Association is the Evangelistic Association and not the Billy Graham Revival Association. He was establishing a ministry which sought to bring people to Christ and at the same time bring revival to the church. He wanted the church to awaken and he wanted lost people to be saved. And he's praying for revival for the church and hoping that their revival will lead to more people coming into the church. When I was, um, this is being recorded, so I don't mind saying this, but when I was growing up, so to speak, the criticism I often heard of Billy Graham is that he did not do a very good job of bringing people into churches 
at, during his crusades, and that's actually not true. When you look at the, uh, when you really get into the data here, part of the preparation leading into his revival, or pardon me, his evangelistic crusades, is getting the churches in place to be able to uh, bring in the converts. He did a very good job of this. What got him in trouble, if you will, is the churches he would bring into the conversation. Think about it. How, how, um, how conservative are you if you bring liberal churches into the conversation of receiving new Christians? And he really rubbed people the wrong way when he would bring more, when, as he expanded the reach of the kinds of churches, he wanted to be ready to be the intake of these new Christians. And that's what offended him, if, if you will, with, the, uh, with many of the, if you will, the, those on the far Christian right. Let me, let me go on to quote him a little bit more. Revival has to do with Christians. It involves the confession and forsaking of sins which grieve the Holy Spirit, hinder peace in the church, and joy in the lives of God's people. In preparation of evangelism, revival is essential. It enables Christians to grow spiritually and gives them an incentive to work and share their faith. We should pray and work for revival, and we must also pray and work for a renewed dedication to the biblical priority of evangelism in the church, end quote. To, to uh, summarize, Billy Graham has no room whatsoever for evangelism to be absent from God's people being revived to be active in evangelism. And conversely, <laughs> Uh, if we all want people to be saved, we must first be revived ourselves. These things go hand in hand. So Billy Graham was not manufacturing revival. Billy Graham was strategically trying to think of ways to get people saved. I don't think it's fair to criticize Billy Graham as one who tried to engineer revival. I think we can bring fair critiques to the way he did his evangelistic crusades. And many of, many of the things he did were new versions of what Charles Finney had done in the Second Great Awakening. So that's kind of what I want to talk about just for a second. As I said in, in the academic literature, the word revival appears in various forms, but also the word awakening does. So the first great awakening is, is almost another way of saying the first great revival in America. We think of Jonathan Edwards and these sorts of things. We can't really, we don't have time to go into Edwards on what he's doing there. But Edwards, and as you heard this from Sam Storms last night, Edwards was mainly emphasizing that revival was a surprising work of God. God did this because God wanted to do it, and he shocked everyone by doing it. And Edwards talked about that a lot. In fact, I will say this about Edwards, or I will quote him here. God did revival because, quote, to show it to be his own peculiar and immediate work, and to secure the glory of it wholly to his almighty power and sovereign grace. So the first great awakening was... A surprise to many in the sense that it wasn't that they weren't praying for it. It's just that when God did it, he, he went big. Uh, to use sort of a modern, <laughs> God went really big with what he, he did. 
Well, the second great awakening was very much uh, Arminian uh, in, in its characteristics. In this view, God was still responsible for revival, and this is very, very important. But God had entrusted the means for revival to the church, or in some cases to the evangelists. So Charles Finney, for example, 1792 to 1875, to get a timeline on him, Finney believed that churches should choose to hold revivals and they could engineer it. And that's very, very important to contrast a Finney model with the Edwards and the others from the First Great Awakening. In his lectures on revivals, Finney said revival, and I quote, is purely philosophical result of the right use of the uh, constituted means, end quote. So he was uh, willing to use any means for results. And one of his most famous means was called the anxious bench. The anxious bench, that is, or the anxious seat rather, that is the place designated at the front of the church or the front of the tent where people were called to come forward and sit and seek repentance and they could pray. This coming forward and sitting in a certain place was pictured as and promoted as where you can come and meet God, where you can come and be even, if you will, converted. Ian Murray says it this way, quote, this is the book is out there on the table, actually, if you wanted to look at this. Ian Murray says, and I quote, There can be no question that by 1900, the impression was almost universal that Charles Grandison Finney had introduced revivals into 19th century America and that his usefulness so exceeded that of all who went before him that there was little evangelistic endeavor before him that deserved serious attention, end quote. In other words... Finney's influence was so big and so profound that anyone who came after Finney did not look past Finney to learn anything. To say that a different way, Billy Graham's day and age did not look so much back to Edwards as much as they looked to the one who most closely resembled them in time, and that would have been Finney. Finney was that important. And Billy Graham spoke very highly of Finney, as I'll quote to you in a moment. What is often referred to, uh, if you study Finney, uh, you're, you're going to find this, um, this term a lot because he uses this term, the new measures. And he, he speaks a lot about the new measures that he wanted to integrate into revivals so that there would be results. We don't have time to talk about all of these, but some of them very clearly are going to be picked up by Billy Graham. The new measures would be... Um, talking or using your sermon to talk about, if you will, psychology or getting into human psyche and psychology. Another would be to have the anxious seat or call upon people to make a visible response to the preached message. Using music to give a mood or some sense of safety, if you will, to create, if you will, an atmosphere by music. Even to use, number four, advertising, a way to promote what you're doing in such a way that would bring the most people there. And then there are different kinds of things he did with praying in the New Measures. Finney and others would defend using New Measures by basically saying, hey guys, look at the success 
of what these things produce. The success proves that the measures are legitimate. God is using them. Look at what he's doing, so to speak. Enter Billy Graham into this. A few years later, right, Billy Graham takes upon, um, after he, he, uh, he was at Bob Jones College, after graduating from Bible College uh, in 43, he went to Wheaton College, I'm sorry, he went to Wheaton College in 1947 at age 30. At age 30, he was hired to be president of a college in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. At 1940, in 1949, at the age of 31, Billy Graham went to Los Angeles. He had a massive tent that stretched over a big, big parking lot. It was called the Canvas Cathedral. The tent would host more than 350,000 Californians who crammed into it nightly. His messages were termed fiery messages. Hollywood sins were easy targets for the young evangelist. Listen to what Billy Graham said in Los Angeles at the age of 31, 1949. Quote, if Sodom and Gomorrah could not get away without sin, neither can Los Angeles. That sort of, it's really obvious what he's saying there, <laughs> where he's trying to draw their attention to biblically. You don't see that tone in later Billy Graham preaching. Sin is still there. Your need for Christ is still there in later preaching. But this sort of um, in-your-face, even a confrontational kind of preaching, this tone is very apparent. Uh, he originally planned the Los Angeles crusade to last only three weeks, but he extended it five weeks because of the demand. 3,000 people were born again during this L.A. crusade. Uh, many famous people were brought into it. In, in fact, God used that particular crusade to shift Billy Graham into national prominence. Why? Because very prominent people got saved, including people who had a lot of significant power. Um, um, there was a Hollywood guy by the name of Will, William Randolph Hearst. He was a newspaper mogul who sent the words. He, he basically promoted Billy Graham for free through his own media, his magazines, and these sorts of things. Graham actually never met the guy, from what I can tell, but this guy made him very, very famous. As one L.A. Times reporter has since said, quote, Billy Graham entered Los Angeles as a virtual unknown, and he left an almost household name. His team quickly dispatched the canvas tent for packed stadiums in major cities around the world. Graham, in his autobiography, Just As I Am, is the title of the autobiography, he calls the 1949 crusade the watershed moment for his crusades. Again, Make sure you're all on the same page. Big tent, using some of the new measures, which we'll talk about in a moment. Massive promotion, fire and brimstone kind of preaching, but the media recognizes this and does the promotion for him. He leaves a household name, he stays for weeks, and the tent gets put up because now he needs stadiums and arenas, so to speak, to carry this message. Um, here's what um, 
As Graham th thought about Finney and maybe some of the new measures, Graham says this of Finney, quote, throughout his spirit-filled ministry, uncounted thousands came to know Christ in the 19th century, resulting in one of the greatest periods of revival in the history of America, end quote. Billy Graham is speaking very kindly of Finney. <laughs> very few people have that sort of, uh, well, I can't say very few. That's not the common way Finney is regarded today. Finney is very much looked at as a very manipulative sort of engineering of his preaching ministry. As you're going to note in your handout, Billy Graham in 1957 spent 16 weeks in New York in Matthew Bowman's magisterial book, The Urban Pulpit. He says that Billy Graham brought his revivalist program into, quote, the jaws of New York. After two years of preparation, he finally declared himself ready for that. It took him two years to get ready to get into New York and preach, working on how to talk to them, getting churches ready to receive those who would become uh, Christians. And 35,000 people in the very first few weeks came to faith in this. Gregory Thornberry says it this way, he was old school and new school simultaneously. He understood evangelicals needed to be media savvy. And he learned that from Los Angeles. The media got the promotion out there for him. Early on, he took to radio, television, and the silver screen. He understood the centrality of publishing he wrote, to more than, he wrote more than two dozen books over his lifetime, founding magazines and this sorts of, these sorts of things. As George Marsden has said, for a long time, a convenient rule of thumb that an evangelical was anyone who identified with Billy Graham. He was the face of the new movement. Okay, coming out of fundament, fundamentalist modernist controversy, who are the evangelicals? They're the ones who want to retain the fundamentals of the faith but not have a fight with everyone, if you will, saying loosely, but not be on the modernist side, which loses the centrality of the gospel and lessens uh, the atonement, these sorts of things. In many ways, and this is very, uh, maybe too big of an oversimplification, the evangelicals were, were a, um, a middle way between the fundamentalist and the modernist. So therefore, if you're in the middle of these two groups, they're both going to accuse you of crimes. To the fundamentalist, you're too liberal. And to the modernist, you're too conservative. And so therefore, depending on whom the, the person you read, you're going to be able to find what they thought of Billy Graham's space there. But here's the thing. It wasn't that the walls closed in on Billy Graham. It's as much as he pushed back that way. So if you have the, the fundamentalists on one side and the modernists on the other side and Billy Graham here in the middle, they didn't do this. He did that. <laughs> because his influence brought more people here. That is the significance of what he did. He brought more and more people here through his magazine, through his preaching, and through other, other ways. But when we think about his revivals, we can say a few things, and I find these things remarkable. He used his evangelistic ministry because he wanted revival to happen among God's people, and he wanted the evangelistic portion of what he's doing to bring people into the church. 
And as Billy Graham did this for many, many years, he used his platform to do more than preach the gospel. He used his platform to address America's sins. Case in point, the sin of racism. Billy Graham noticed that his audience was mainly white. And the people that were on the stage with him were mainly white. In the 1950s, he desegregated his audience. That was a big deal for him to do that at that time. When Graham got to New York City in 1957, he saw that his audiences were overwhelmingly white. And so he contacted a black friend of his by the name of Howard Jones, pastor of a large African-American church in Cleveland. And he asked what he could do about it. How can I get my services to be more integrated? Because Billy Graham wants people to be saved. And um, he was told, well, you've got to, uh, uh, don't wait for blacks to come to you. You need to go to them. And so um, this changed everything about what he, his approach. So on July the 5th, Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. had a phone conversation. And afterwards, Graham's associate, associate wired a telegram to you young kids, fancy text message, uh, to, uh, Bill, uh, to Martin Luther King's group, inviting him to be a part of the crusade. And uh, let's see. On July the 18th, 1957, so that big New York City, this is why I think this is a major turning point for Billy Graham, the 1957 New York crusade, he had Martin Luther King Jr. come on stage and give a public prayer at Madison Square Garden. And here... By the way, to keep that in America's context, um, the, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott had just ended seven months earlier in December of 56. Martin Luther King Jr. was 28 at the time. Um, Billy Graham's 38, if I do my math right. And here's how Billy Graham introduced Martin Luther King Jr. Quote, A great social revolution is going on in the United States today. Dr. King is one of its leaders. We appreciate his taking time out of his busy schedule to come and share this service with us tonight, end quote. In his autobiography, which I've already told you the title of that is Just As I Am, Billy Graham says that he and King developed a close friendship. He was eventually one of the few people who referred to Martin Luther King Jr. as Mike, and MLK only gave that privilege to just a few people, to his closest of friends. In 1963, it was Billy Graham who posted bail for Martin Luther King to be released from jail during the civil rights protest in Birmingham, Alabama. So racism got onto the stage of Billy Graham's evangelistic crusades because he saw it as a sin from which America needed to repent of. And so evangelism, if you will, got wider. It wasn't just fire and brimstone be safe from your sins. It's look out there and see what's going on kind of thing. By the way, another one, we don't have time to get into it. Another way he used his influence was to address America's international problems, namely the nuclear crisis. He is a Cold War evangelist. Nuclear disarmament is, was a major concern of his. In fact, in the early 80s, Graham said this, he wanted to spend the rest of his life preaching the gospel and working for global nuclear disarmament. That's a quote, by the way. Those are his words. 
I want to take the gospel to everyone, and I want us to get rid of nuclear weapons. That's, I mean, how many evangelists speak this way? I don't, I don't know of really anyone that talks that way. In an interview with Sojourners magazine, Graham said this, quote, Is a nuclear holocaust inevitable if the arms race is not stopped? Frankly, the answer is almost certainly yes, end quote. For those of you who remember those times, I don't, I wasn't here, but, but I've read enough history to know these were intense times, international tension. And where's Billy Graham? He's right in the middle of it. And he's doing a lot of work. Um, his use of altar calls comes not from something he thought of on a whim. He's taking from Charles Finney this idea of getting up and coming forward. The introduction of the hymn, Just As I Am, which was the mainstay in Billy Graham's crusades, is coming from Finney's New Measures. I'm not saying that he's copying and pasting Charles uh, or Finney into Billy Graham's uh, way of doing it. I am saying Billy Graham didn't make any of this stuff up. He's borrowing from the American revivalist tradition. In a 2005 interview, Cliff Barrows, the longtime musical director for Billy Graham, said, and I quote, We always began with just as I am because Billy felt it was the most effective invitation hymn, inviting people to make a commitment to Christ, end quote. That's one of the new measures. A music, a kind of music, that makes or causes and creates a mood with which people respond. You can really get into the details of how just this one hymn was a major part of his crusade. There was a time when they quit using it and they repented. <laughs> they repented of such a crime that they actually thought they would get a, you know, use something else. Um, Billy Graham is critiqued today about his use of the altar call. Not so much the music, but what he would say to people. Finney was very manipulative. Graham wasn't, but Graham sort of conflated two things. And I'll read the quote. I'll read a quote to you, for example. Uh, let me find it. Here's Billy Graham speaking in, in one of his... By the way, uh, this is what can be confusing. The term altar call and the term invitation are often the same thing, depending on who you're talking about or who you're talking to. Some will say, we give invitations at our church. And another person will say, we give altar calls at our church. And they're meaning the same thing. They don't mean the same thing all the time, though. There are a lot of preachers at our church, at Trinity Bible Church, I think every sermon I hear, there's an invitation. Come to Christ. But there's not an altar call. Come forward. And oftentimes when you go back and read 20th century American revivalism, these two terms are conflated. They're the same thing. And we have to make sure we are understanding, are they meaning the same thing or are they meaning two different things? Well, when Billy Graham gave his invitation, and that's what he called it, <laughs> he said this, Don't let distance keep you from Christ. Christ went to the cross because he loved you. Certainly you can come these few steps. Come right now. End quote. I'm not saying Billy Graham is a bad guy. <laughs> I'm saying I think if he were writing a book, he wouldn't write it that way. Sometimes when you're speaking, you don't have the, the preparation to say things like you want. 
And sometimes this, the way that sounds is, if you want Jesus, you have to come down here. When Jesus could save them out there. And it's that conflating of the, in the altar call system that some have critiqued Billy Graham. And um, he was not, by the way, without critiquing himself. And I'll get to that hopefully in just a second. So this is, in, in some ways, some of the enduring ways we could look back at Billy Graham, just for time's sake, say God clearly used him. He was a man of in, impeccable character and integrity. He was a man who wanted to reach across the aisle. I kind of skipped over a big section here, because as, as, this paper kind of got away from me as I was writing it. Billy Graham, as I said here, really expanded this. And by the way, where he learned it was not in America. He learned it when he went to London. When he went to London, no one would, if you will, endorse or promote his campaign. But then he got to preaching. <laughs> and people started getting saved. And as a result of him spending some time there, more and more people signed on, if you will, and he learned, I can come back to America. And how big can we make this platform? Not his platform, but a platform that brings people from the edges together. There's a significant, uh, there's a significant amount of work that needs to be done studying Billy Graham, not so much from the revivals, but his ability to bring people together like Carl F.H. Henry, intellectual uh, giant of the 20th century, Christianity Today, these sorts of things, and then bring other uh, preachers. Billy Graham, what a lot of people don't know is Billy Graham was funding other evangelists. It wasn't about himself. He was fun, uh, funding a lot of other people. When Billy Graham looked back over his life, he said there are three things he wishes he could do differently. And I think this speaks a lot about him. Number one, and I'm quoting him here, one of my great regrets is that I have not studied enough. I wish I had studied more and preached less. People have pressured me into speaking to groups when I should have been studying and preparing. You've already heard this quote today, and Billy Graham's going to quote him too. Donald Barnhouse said that if he knew the Lord was coming in three years, he would spend two of them studying and one preaching. I'm trying to make it up, end quote. Another thing, if he could do it again. Also, I did not spend enough time with my family when they were growing up. You cannot recapture those years. I might add that there are, or pardon me, that through the years I have met many, many people. I feel terrible that I cannot keep up with all those friends and acquaintances. Number three, I would not have encouraged the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and its affiliates to get so big. We have been trying to cut back here and there without affecting the ministry. God has called us to. That's an interesting way to look back on his life. Um, and by the way, one way that he tried to do it, after he died, a lot of people started asking the question, will there ever be another Billy Graham? It's an interesting question to ask. In our time, will there be another one? I, don't th I think the, the agreement is there will not be another Billy Graham with decades-long access to American power. I don't think you're going to see another religious leader who at the end of his life will have dined with 13 presidents. Not the kind of way he did. <laughs> um, but you might see someone who has the reach that he had because of media. The availability of media. I think if Billy Graham were 30 years old today, he'd be using a lot of the social media connectivity that we have. 
because he was using every kind of new media he had in his day. He used the television, he used radio, he used newspapers, he used it all. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of um, this phrase. It's kind of misleading in a sense, but the global south. The global south is where Christianity is really thriving and where many people think it's going to grow. Think of this term as another way of describing undeveloped countries or developing countries, non-white countries kind of thing. Uh, much growth is happening there. Now, some of it we can critique because some of it is uh, health and wealth, prosperity gospel preaching in Africa. But even in that kind of preaching, God genuinely works sometimes and saves people. People come out of that. Uh, there's a lot of work that's, that's being done on that. There is somebody, by the way, who came from Argentina uh, that Billy Graham kind of, in a sense, endorsed to be another evangelist, Luis Palau, um, who uh, drew inspiration from Billy Graham when he first heard him. He later worked for Billy Graham as a Spanish translator and an evangelist. In 1970, Billy Graham gave him seed money to start his own evangelistic association and to go preach the gospel around the world. It was Billy Graham funding that. A lot of people didn't know that. Um, so I, I, think it's, I think this is, um, I think we could say this, the next Billy Graham may not be a white guy and he may not live in America. It could be someone coming from, if you will, the global south, some developing country maybe who... It could be an American, don't, don't misunderstand me, but it, it, I don't know that it's going to look the same way. I think we can be, uh, I think we're running out of time, but I think we could say this, as I've said on the front end, we can be very grateful for Billy Graham. Many people came to faith through him. He was not perfect, and so therefore he's not without criticism. And some of the things we could critique him for is there are times where the Finney influence is very apparent. Um, and a lot of times it's off-the-cuff speaking, not so much in what he writes, if you will. Um, everything about his crusades has Finney's stamp all over it. Everything about it. But he was not a manipulative preacher like Charles Finney was. Um, in fact, you can read countless scores of people who recount sitting through Billy Graham's preaching he was not manipulating people. There was not a, this was not a, a con artist kind of thing going on here. Um, we can also, whatever your thoughts of, on this kind of thing are, we could also critique him for better or worse, how he used his influence to address things that aren't, maybe at first glance, gospel things. Depends on how you understand gospel things, right? <laughs> America's racial sins, nuclear disarmament, these sorts of things. How big or how much can we agree on? I mean, he brought Catholics into the, uh, uh, into the uh, conversation. And that, imagine how that's going to make some fundamentalists feel. What's the priest sitting over there for? I mean, uh, there's a lot to learn from the ecumenical desire of Billy Graham, which you don't see in L.A., but you do see 1957 and after. This expanding of the partners he will be willing to work with. I think there's a lot to learn here and a lot for us to be grateful for. I think we have a few minutes. Do you have any questions?